0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good morning, church. Please take your Bibles and turn to the ninth chapter of Romans. We are engaged in the study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we are in a section taking this letter verse by verse from beginning to end. We've come to the ninth chapter to the 19th verse. What we've been looking at in the ninth chapter of Romans, really it's a package deal. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are like three chapters out of a story, three scenes out of human history. And they can be, there's some overlap here, but they can be divided like this. Chapter 9 of Romans is a story of what God is doing or has done in human history in the past regarding salvation. The 10th chapter of Romans is the story of what God is doing in the present in human history related to the salvation of mankind. And then Romans chapter 11 is the story of what God will do in the future all the way up to the great and final day in this narrative of the salvation of mankind. So what we've got here in these three chapters is this panoramic view of what God's overall sovereign design is past, present, and future for the salvation of the human race. And so we are in the midst of chapter 9, verse 19. And what we've got here in verse 19 is a powerful tool. I said to you last week that in verse 14, we had a powerful tool in that verse, a diagnostic tool that will help us to determine if what we have been looking at in the preceding verses prior to 14 was in fact a correct interpretation of that text. I'm not going to re-show you that this morning, but the same principle is true today. Chapter 9 verse 19 is a powerful tool. And what we can do with this tool is we can use it and apply it to what has been said in the preceding verses particularly verses 14 to 18 but really the whole the whole chapter and with it say have we been interpreting this ninth chapter of Romans correctly? <clears throat> So what has kind of been the highlight points of the interpretation? And then we'll look at verse 19 and see if it's correct. What I have been teaching in Romans 9 is that God, number one, claims the right as the sovereign God to determine who He will dispense His mercy upon. And everyone upon whom he chooses to dispense his saving mercy upon, not one of them deserve it. And then the other side of that is that God, as the sovereign God, has the right to harden those who are in their sin so that they come to the end of their life and they receive the condemnation that they justly deserved as sinners. So God claims the right to extend His mercy to those who don't deserve it, and God claims the right to be able to harden those who are in their sin and who deserve condemnation. But that's only one aspect of the truth that we've been looking at. Here's the other. That not only does God have the right, God exercises that right related to his sovereign dispensing of mercy and his sovereign hardening. And so what Paul has done is he has used examples from Israel's history, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh in chapter 9 to prove the truths of those statements. So then we come verse 19. And here's the question. Is that interpretation of the verses preceding verse 19 a correct interpretation? Is there something in verse 19 that will tell us whether or not we have interpreted those verses correctly or incorrectly? Let's look at verse 19 and I think you'll be able to see that they are a very powerful tool that validates that very interpretation of Romans 9. Paul writes in Romans 19, you will say to me then, why does he, referring to God, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? So how is this verse a tool to check our interpretation of the preceding verses? Well, what Paul is doing here is he is playing the role in writing this of an objector someone that rises up and takes objection to what he has just written he's done this several times in Romans he's done it a few times already in Romans chapter 9 You see Paul there was some consistent objections that Paul would get to his teaching when he taught about the free grace of God and when he talked about the election of God that we're looking at here. So he knew what the objections were. He had been preaching this message, this good news of Jesus for a long time. But what he's doing here in Romans is he's writing. He's not talking to a group of people. So they're not there to object. And so as a good author, what he does is he anticipates their objection and he writes it into the text. So it's like even though they're not right there with him, they get their objection answered because he knows that some of his readers will have it. And so he finishes this section teaching that God is sovereign in the dispensation of his mercy, however he chooses, upon whomever he chooses, and they don't deserve it, and that God is sovereign in hardening whomever he wants to harden that's in sin. He's God. He can do that. Then comes verse 19. Let's see if this objection fits that interpretation. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Let's just take those a phrase at a time. Why does God still find fault? You see, the objection here is from the previous verse, verse 18, where Paul said, So then God has mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy and he hardens whomever he wants to harden. He's sovereign. He does that. He's God. He has the right to and he exercises the right. So then the objector objector rises up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God just determines sovereignly in himself those whom he's going to harden in their sin then how can he justly fault them for remaining in their sin? Do you see how the objection fits perfectly with the interpretation that we have been looking at? It's a direct fit. Second phrase, and this even gets more specific, shows even clearer that the interpretation was correct. For who can resist his will the focal point here is the will of God and what is implied what is commonly understood by the objector by those reading will of course when God determines to do something when he sets his mind at it when it is his will to get something accomplished how many of the things that God determines that he's going to accomplish does the sovereign all-powerful God accomplish how many church All of them. I mean, that's the common knowledge. That's the point that sets up the objection. So it goes like this. If God wills, why does He find fault for who can resist God's will? What will? His will to, for example, harden Pharaoh. Previous verse. So if that's the will of God that God would come to Pharaoh in his rebellion and his sin and harden him there so that repeatedly he would disobey the command of God to let the Israelites go from Egypt and he stubbornly remained there under the hardening of God. If that was the will of God, how could God fault Pharaoh for that? Because there's nobody that can stop the will of God from being accomplished. In other words, Pharaoh had no other option. So the objection then makes sense. God's will is always and perfectly and eternally accomplished. Who can resist it? Therefore, if he wills to harden somebody, how can he fault them for that hardening? Confirmation that the interpretation has been correct. Let me come in at one other way. There are some that interpret Romans 9, and the election of God, which is in Romans 9 and in many other passages of Scripture, but there are some that interpret the election of God, God choosing those that He is going to lavish His mercy on and call to Himself and grant them faith and repentance so that they accept Christ and are saved. There are those that say, here's how it works, and they go back to the end of Romans 8 that sets up Romans 9 and they interpret Romans 8, and 30 like this. That God foreknows he has cognitive awareness God is a God that is omniscient he knows all things about all times at all times he's known everything that every man and every woman would do throughout all of eternity past even though they had not been created yet in his mind he could see it as if it had already happened and so God's foresight enables God to look down through the halls of history and look across the entire human race and see everyone that would put their faith in Christ repent and trust in Christ. Therefore, God chose them because he saw that they would choose him. So, let's take that other main interpretation of Romans 9 and ask this question. Does that fit with the objection? And the answer is no. It does not fit with the objection. It makes no sense. The objection, if that was the teaching that Paul was giving the objector wouldn't rise up and say, wow, that's not fair. Because it would be in the human mind perfectly fair. Because God would be treating everyone exactly based upon what they did. He would be the responder. They would be initially the actor. And God would just choose them because they would choose Him. So, Verse 19 would tell us that that is not the way to interpret the preceding verses, that what the preceding verses are talking about is a sovereign God who has the right to dispense his mercy and his hardening as he chooses. So let's watch now as Paul responds to this objection. Objection that he wrote, anticipating what they were thinking, an objection that he had answered many times in his preaching of the gospel. Verse 20, Paul's initial response is this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? What I want you to see here is the very first thing that Paul does is he goes to the heart. You see, it's really clear in Scripture. God doesn't care. God is not against us asking questions of Him, trying to understand His truth. God's all for that. He wants us to study and to seek the truth out. But what is not permissible from any human being is to presume this position to rise up and say to God, God, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to make this decision. God, it's not righteous of you. It's not fair of you to do this. And I want to show you how Paul comes against that heart. He takes out his, the sovereign acts of God and he begins to chop down mankind to the level at which they should approach God. And he does it by saying this, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Notice the comparison that he is making explicit in the verse, O man, O man and God, O man, and God. He is driving the truth home that anyone that seeks to rise up and tell God that God doesn't have the right to do what he says that he has the right to do, that that person obviously has a warped and deceived misunderstanding of the difference between them and God. They're simply man. They're simply the creature. He is the creator. And man should never try to get God to answer to him as if man can judge the actions of God as being right or being wrong. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So the first thing that he does in that comparison is he is showing the incredible disparity between man, lowly creature, God, sovereign creator. And then in verse 21, he makes another comparison. This comparison is potter and clay has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, here's the scene. The potter comes to the potter's wheel. He brings his clay ready to be molded. He has one lump of clay. That's what the text says. One lump, the same lump. And he places that there on a on a stand or a piece of wood by the wheel, and he takes half of that lump, one section of it, and he puts it on the potter's wheel. And according to the design that he has in his mind, he fashions one vessel out of that lump. A vessel that's going to be used as a beautiful vessel in a home, a vessel for show. He finishes... And he puts it in the kiln and he takes the rest of the clay and he puts it on the potter's wheel and he fashions another vessel. This one is a very common vessel that's going to be used for very common things. And the question is asked, does not the potter have the right to do that with the same lump of clay, one for dishonorable use, one for dishonorable use? And the answer is obviously, the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. He's the potter. It's the clay. Again, disparity of difference between the clay and the potter. And as great as that disparity is, it doesn't match the disparity between man and the creator God, between finite man and infinite God, between powerless man and all sovereign, powerful God. The point is, Make sure that when you come and question God, make sure that when you're seeking out truth, that you come humbly before the Creator, God the Sovereign, God the King, God of the universe, and you seek truth out humbly and you don't presume to come to Him and say, God, I want you, to answer me, why are you doing what you're doing? We have no right to do that. We are the clay. We are the man. He is the potter. He is God. That's the point. Do not come irreverently. Come humbly. Come seeking. But come in a recognition of who you're coming to. Thinking about that with this very subject that we're dealing with. I know this is very hard for some as we've walked through the last seven weeks, Romans chapter 9, this idea of God's unconditional free election. It is a difficult subject. Be careful not to rise up against God and say, God, you have no right to do that. You have no right. That's not fair. As if you know what's fair and what's not with God. Now let's look at some of the rest of the verses here. Verse 22 and 23. Here Paul, now that he's kind of chopped man down to size, what he's going to do now is he's going to answer the objection, at least in part. There can be no this side of glory With this finite mind and finite description, there can be no full revelation of the infinite decrees of the eternal God. I mean, we could just hear that sentence and say, well, obviously, there's no way that we can fully know the infinite God and how he works in all of eternity and his decrees. But we can know what he's chosen to show us. And what Paul is going to show us is a few things related to how God works regarding his eternal decrees concerning the destinies of mankind. Verse 22 and 23, here's what Paul says, what if God, he's saying, what if God does it like this? Consider this, what if this is the way that God, the sovereign creator works? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. So let's look into this and see what Paul is giving as an answer to the objection. First of all, a couple of clarifications of a few of the phrases here. That phrase in verse 22, when Paul is writing about the vessels of wrath, He says that they are, quote, prepared for destruction. And what I want you to notice there is that there is nothing explicit said about the one that prepares them for destruction. Do you see that? It's just a statement, a passive statement that talks about them being prepared for destruction, but it doesn't say who did the preparing. Now I want you to look at verse 23 regarding the vessels of mercy. What does it say about their preparation? Is it explicit about who prepares them for glory? And what we find is it's very explicit that Paul writes related to the vessels of mercy that he, referring to God, that God has prepared them beforehand for glory. So there's a clear distinction here in the text. Vessels of mercy, that they were prepared beforehand. I mean, I'm sorry, vessels of wrath, that they were prepared beforehand. No indication of who did the preparing. Vessels of mercy that God prepared them. And when did He do it? Beforehand for what? For glory. So, who then did the preparing of the vessels of wrath for destruction? Well, I think one way to answer that question is that the vessel itself did the preparing. And let me just bring it home. We do the preparing of our own self in our own sin. We are sinners and we sin. That means that God is righteous and just should He condemn us because He's holy, and His holiness demands that sin be answered in His universe that is governed according to the laws that He has established. And the laws that He has established is that if you sin, there is the punishment of physical and eternal death and separation from God. So the preparing of the vessels of wrath for destruction is... Certainly, something that the vessel themselves, the persons themselves, do the preparing. But when it comes to the vessels of mercy prepared for glory, it is God that does the preparing beforehand to accomplish the glory that he is determining in his eternal decree to give to them his elect. So, let's now try to see if we can discover how Paul then answers the objection related to how God works toward the salvation of mankind, saving some who didn't deserve it and hardening those who are in their sin and fully deserve wrath. He says in verse 22, What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power? There's the purpose. The purpose of God related to how He works in the lives of those that are guilty in their rebellion, in their sin, that He chooses on some of them to harden them so that they remain in their sin so that ultimately they receive his condemnation, his just and fair condemnation that the purpose is that through that he could show his wrath and his power. You see... What we've talked about in weeks past is that God is a righteous God. And His righteousness means something different biblically than we would think it would mean with our human minds. As we study that biblically, here's what we find out. That the righteousness of God means this. God is always going to act in the way that brings him the most glory. That's what the righteousness of God is in his actions. It means that he will always do what brings him the most glory glory. That's the right action. This is His universe. It's ultimately all about His glory. So the best and the greatest thing for God to do in any and every situation is to act in such a way that it brings Him the most possible glory. And so what is taking place here, Paul says, in the hardening of those who are sinners is that God is going to, through their lives, show His wrath and His power. He's going to reveal things about Himself that could not be seen without there being guilty sinners. He's going to use those who rebel against Him and rise up against His law and against His authority. He's going to use them as examples to show aspects of his nature that could not be shown in any other way. That's the secondary purpose that Paul paints here. But there's a primary purpose that even supersedes that. And you can see it clearly in the wording coming into verse 23. So after he talks about what God is doing regarding the vessels of wrath and displaying his wrath and power, he opens verse 23 saying, in order to, in other words, here's the purpose for the wrath and the power being displayed in judgment upon the condemned. It's in order to, it's for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You see, the higher and the greater and the more exalted purpose is this, that God, by displaying and revealing His wrath and His power against those who are sinners and rebels and deserve his wrath and power, that the great thing that he's going to do in dispensing his judgment upon them, he is going to show it in contrast to the lavished, indescribable, brilliant manifold picture of his mercy, that that judgment is going to be this black, curtain as a backdrop upon which the brilliance of his mercy is going to be seen by his elect so that they say oh my goodness look at the beautiful brilliant indescribable mercy of God I am just overflowing with praise and adoration for God and who he is look at his mercy as contrasted to what I truly do his wrath and his judgment, but he gave me undeservedly his mercy. Oh God, you are worthy forever and ever to be praised in increasing measure throughout eternity. See, that's the point that Paul is driving at here. The great purpose is related to the elect and those that he elects, he effectually calls to himself, regenerates them so that they go from death to life so that they can now see and hear and understand who Jesus is and what the gospel is so that he can give them faith to believe and with that new heart now regenerated, they put that faith in Jesus, and they repent and accept him, and he justifies them, and then forever he will glorify them and reveal more and more of the beauty and greatness of his mercy in unending ages, in increasing measure, so that the glory just rises in its crescendo throughout all of eternity. That's the point. That's the point. Let me just sum it up with a few thoughts here. You see, what is inherent in the objection of verse 19, the essence of the objection of verse 19 is this. If God shows mercy to anyone, then he is obligated to show mercy to everyone. That's what's in that objection because none of us deserve his mercy. We all deserve his wrath and his judgment, but to some he gives mercy and to some he hardens and keeps them in their sin. But if that's true, then the objection rises up and says, well, Man, that's not fair. God, you didn't give mercy to all. You allowed some to stay in their sin. You chose not to elect everyone and send the effectual call to everyone. God, you don't have the right to do that. If you give mercy to anyone, you're obligated to give mercy to everyone. Do you see that that's what's at the heart of the objection? And so what Paul is teaching here is that that is not a true assessment. God is God. He has the right as the creator to do whatever he wants. But let me clarify this a little bit. Paul is not saying that God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creatures. I'm going to add one word in there. To make it more clear, what Paul is saying is that God has the right to do whatever He wants with His sinful creatures because we all deserve His condemnation. It would be justice if we all were condemned. So, with His sinful creatures, God has the right to do whatever He wants. He's God, He's just, He's holy. Sin is against His holiness. It's an outbreak of rebellion against the holiness and righteousness of God and His holiness and righteousness demands that that be punished. And so if we got what we deserved, it would be condemnation across the board. And the point Paul is making is God is not obligated because He gives mercy to some to give mercy to all. He's God. He can do what He wants. And if He chooses to elect and to call His elect to Himself and to bring them to faith and to justify them and to glorify them. Who are we to say He can't do it that way? That's the point. He's been building all through Romans 9 from verse 6 on that one thought right there. So let me leave you with four statements of application, kind of conclusions of truth. First is this. God has the right to deal with sinful creatures as He chooses to deal with them. It's right that He does so. That word right in verse 22 talking about the vessels of mercy, I mean the vessels of wrath, I'm sorry, it's not verse 22, it's verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? That means the legal right. The legal right. In other words, the right to do it and that whatever he does is actually the right thing for him to do. The legal right. So the point here is that God has the right, it is the right thing for him to deal with his sinful creatures as he chooses. Number two, because God chooses to extend his mercy to some, does not obligate him to extend his mercy to all. He has the right, he's God, to extend that where he wants. Number three, that God, what this judgment of sinners shows us is that God is a holy God who hates sin, and who will ultimately bring all sin under His judgment and wrath. That's what it means to be the holy, sovereign God. And number four, that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. And the ultimate and the great end toward which this human experiment, this human campaign is moving forward is that what God is doing is He is... Preparing to give the greatest and most perfect revelation, demonstration of His mercy as is possible, so that it so fires up and blows away and inspires every one of his elect whom he's called and justified and glorifies forever to cause this increasing chorus of worship and adoration and praise for the splendor of the manifold brilliance of his mercy. And he ends in verse 24 with this even us, whom he, God, has called. You see, Paul has been teaching that thought all the way back in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. The effectual call of God, that when God elects someone in eternity past, he comes to their life in a moment in time and he calls them to himself effectually. And the call accomplishes that for which it is sent. That's even us whom he has called, meaning everyone that he has called is going to receive this lavish dispensing of his mercy that is going to be so shockingly incredible, thereby providing the greatest picture of his glory possible. That's what God does. That's what God will do. Would you please stand? If you want to come and pray, you can come to one of the altars. There'll be an elder over here to my right. If you want someone to pray for you, if you have a need this morning, you come and we'll be happy to do that. We're going to Just close in a prayer, and then we're going to sing. And if you want to come and pray while we're singing, you do that. Father, thank you. Lord, I'm just... I am just, again, overwhelmed at the greatness, this little picture that my small, finite creature mind can grasp, this picture of your greatness, your sovereignty. Uh, Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to live our days in increasing praise for that mercy. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.